If you're a veteran or military spouse of an early stage startup or small business, you've come to the right place. Welcome to The Transition, where we demystify the entrepreneur experience for veterans and military spouses who've already made or are looking to make the transition from the military into entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Iron Mike Stedman, the voice of the bunker. I'm a Marine Corps veteran, social entrepreneur, and member of the Bunker Labs branding team. If you're looking for non-dilutive capital for your business and are considering applying for a bank loan, this is an episode you don't want to miss. To discuss with me how veterans and military spouses can properly leverage the banking system, I recently sat down with Jerry Gein, Executive Vice President and Chief Operating Officer of Fortune Bank, a community bank in Arnold, Missouri. Although Jerry isn't a veteran, he's a career banker who brings a wealth of knowledge regarding lending to small businesses. I first came across Jerry after he gave a presentation on banking to a group of veteran business leaders. I was so blown away by his transparency regarding the myths and misconceptions many business leaders have about the type of businesses best suited to receive loans that I knew I had to get him on the podcast to discuss the topic with the bunker. I get so many requests regarding resources and information for those looking for outside capital that I'm always anxious to get you world-class knowledge from trusted professionals. On this episode, Jerry and I discuss what businesses are best suited for bank loans, how to position yourself to be approved, and alternatives for those unable to receive a loan. My hope is that by the end of this episode, you have a better understanding of how to leverage the banking system to support your entrepreneurial journey. As a reminder, I'm also hosting weekly live office hours for you every Tuesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. If you find yourself stuck for any reason or have questions about Bunker Labs programming, be sure to tune in to Office Hours. This episode of The Transition is brought to you by the MetLife Foundation and their commitment to supporting veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. In addition, the foundation also provides mentorship and financial health resources to veterans and military spouses transitioning into the workforce. As always, I hope you enjoy today's show and that it accelerates you on your own entrepreneurial journey. Mr. Gein, welcome to The Transition. How are you doing today? I'm good, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. And first of all, I want to say it's an honor and privilege to have you addressing members of The Bunker. For those of you that are tuning in and listen, listening, I had a chance to hear Mr. Gein talk to a, a cohort I'm a part of, a mastermind group, uh, where he was talking about uh, leveraging the banking system and just, you know, what we as small business owners, early stage entrepreneurs, you know, really need to know um, so that we can... Uh, leverage the system accordingly. You know, there's a lot of myths and uh, uh, how do you describe it, Mr. Game? People that don't really understand uh, how, how banking actually works. You always, we only lend money to people who don't need it, right, Mike? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so. And uh, I was so impressed by his presentation. I was so impressed by his vulnerability and his openness that I thought he'd be a great um, asset to have on the, on the transition because I get a lot of uh, feedback from listeners who say they want to um, learn more about funding opportunities for their for their ventures, um, particularly like non-dilutive type of funding, which makes you think of, you know, getting some kind of loan and uh, leveraging the banking system. And so um, rather than, you know, me try to finagle my way through something I don't have expertise in, I go out and find the experts and then bring them on the platform to deliver knowledge and insight to our audience. And so, again, it's an honor uh, to have you here today, sir. Mike, thank you. I appreciate it. It's an honor for me as well. I like the people that you uh, uh, you speak to. 
just to set the tone for the community, we're a team of veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs. Um, a lot of us sometimes first time business owners, maybe got a couple second and third times, maybe you have some startups, but uh, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and introducing yourself to them and uh, let them know your background within the banking system. Sure. So, uh, Mike, I am a career banker. So I'm, uh, actually my, my career started when I was in college, I worked my way through school and paid my tuition working for uh, financial institutions. And um, most of my career is assisting entrepreneurs um, with expansion or business acquisition, financing, and funding. I do spend a fair amount of time consulting with them, particularly in the last 15 years. Um, in 2005, a friend of mine and I started a bank uh, from scratch, ground up, and um, actually started the process in October of 04. And I think that and ultimately opened December 1 of 05. And I think that experience particularly has allowed me to appreciate even more the challenges that people find when they go out to either buy a company, start a company, and some of the, um, I don't know what the right word is, some of the uh, holy cow moments that we all face during a period like that. So, um, so I've been in my business um, at the age of 62 for over 40 years. And uh, that's almost embarrassing, by the way. But uh, yes, so doing all those things and as far as an executive side of it is concerned, um, uh, dealt with the regulatory environment in our industry, as well as trying to bridge that environment uh, to the entrepreneurs that we do business with. We are a small community bank just south of St. Louis, Missouri. Um, we have approximately 60 employees in various divisions that include an insurance agency, mortgage company, an SBA lending group, and a wealth management group. So uh, the experience we have is as much as banking as it is in business. So I think that helps when we talk to small business people. You said something that's important there, and this is again why I wanted to have you on the platform is community banking, mm -hmm. right? Uh, people that understand the challenges faced by small businesses in their local community understand the challenges at the grassroots level of what it takes to get a, a venture off the ground. And then for those of you that are like histor historians like myself, right, you know the role community banking plays in creating economic uh, development. And, you know, one of the things that we do on this platform is we take off our armor, right? And as you represent somebody within the banking industry, you know, typically I have an entrepreneur come on here and ask them to take off their armor, sharing something either personally, professionally that they're struggling through as an entrepreneur, um, what are one of the, I don't mind ask you, take off your arm around banking. What are some of the challenges that you guys are facing with regards to, um, you know, lending right now? Sure. Um, some of the challenges we face, frankly, Mike, are not necessarily challenges that are, are economically motivated or politically motivated. They're pretty consistent. So first and foremost, um, and frankly, it's one of the most frustrating parts of our industry. The regulatory environment we face from agencies like the FDIC is filled with second guessing of every decision we make. So bankers, we have exam teams come in and examine our company every 12 to 18 months. That exam team in a company like ours might be 12 different regulators who come in and spend two weeks in our company looking through every piece of the business practice that we do and then second guessing us. Candidly, it's exhausting. Um, most of them um, have not done anything but that regulatory environment. So those of you 
uh, who've dealt with that maybe in the service, even when you were there. It's a, it's a very structured environment. And yet we're trying to uh, help people realize their dreams. And it can become very frustrating bridging those two goals. Um, so that challenge exists no matter what. If I go back to 08, when the recession had started, the, the large, that large recession, it was extremely frustrating at that time because everything we did was multiplied. It's almost as if our regulatory agencies came in and, and thought we were trying to do something wrong. It felt that way. And um, it makes it really hard to take care of people who are honest, who are trying to succeed. Um, because of that second guessing in this industry that goes on. Lately, the last couple of years have been really um, extremely rewarding, both from a personal perspective and financial perspective. Our company has, has succeeded in a way it has not ever done in 15 years since we started last year and so far this year. The activity in business has been uh, exceptionally good with people trying to take advantage of buying a franchise or owning a company or expanding their company. And that sounds weird coming out of the pandemic as we're going through it. But it's been interesting because of the government intervention and all of the money that's been shoved into the system, the activity in buying companies, selling assets in companies is extraordinarily right now. So it's that part of it has actually been been very good. It'll be interesting to me as we go through the, you know, come out of this this period what the regulatory environment then will look like. So again, that's always, that's our biggest challenge is this probably the regulatory environment and satisfying our agencies that we are, we have to deal with. Well, I appreciate you sharing that for our audience, you know, pulling the curtain back and letting us know a little bit about, you know, some of the challenges that you're facing as a banker. And what I want to do is I want to go ahead and just jump right into the topic that we're going to be discussing today, which is how veterans can leverage um, the banking system. And so I, I guess one of the first sure. things we should talk about is who is uh, lending for when you think about uh, the veteran entrepreneurial landscape? Is it for the early stage, you know, uh, kind of just has an idea, doesn't really have any paid clients yet, but knows they need some capital to get their venture off the ground? Or is it more of like the growth stage um, already has some revenue coming in and are looking to get to that next level? Sure. So the fact is, Everybody who wants to own a business, start a business, buy a business, they do need to have some level of private capital. And that level is typically about 10% of the overall capital need that they have to buy their business. Um, and that's with us using, say, a small business administration loan program. And that can frustrate people. Because you said something when we led into this, how do we do this without um, watering down our ownership position? And, and that every, nobody wants to give up ownership. I understand that. But the fact is, you, everybody needs some private capital. So what I usually advise people to do, you know, that's when you go to friends and family, frankly, if you don't have it yourself. And that can be, uh, to your point, it can be a bit disarming and a little humbling when you do that. Um, I revert back to when we started our company. We raised money from 150 individuals to start our bank, including our own capital. Uh, myself and our chairman put in the first capital. So we know what it's like to go ask people for money. So therefore, we do have empathy for it, but we have to do that. Now, from a startup, pure startup standpoint, 
we lend based on cash flow. Every bank I know lends on cash flow. I know you hear about collateral. I know you hear about all those pieces. Candidly, if we ever have to own somebody's collateral, we're going to lose a lot of money. <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's the ability to pay us back. And so if it's a startup venture, brand new, out-of-the-box startup, we as bankers will be looking to see that while this venture is getting started and before it actually produces profit, who can make our payment? Where is that coming from? And that's when we will typically advise, or I will typically advise people, that that's probably the time you need to bring in either a minority partner or maybe your spouse has income outside of the business you're trying to start. But that, to us, is probably the most critical aspect of a startup business. If somebody doesn't have that ability, but they feel like they've got access to a little bit of capital, that's probably when we'll start to talk to them about exploring purchasing a going business and then using that, using that as a platform to grow into something bigger for themselves later. Um, that's how I would normally advise people to do it. Um, and again, I've seen it. It's funny when you sit down with people, it's, 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 it's interesting. Nobody ever wants to talk to anybody about teaming up with them or, or helping them get this done. It's like co-signing. Remember your kids, we all co had co-signers for our car loans. That's what we're really asking when you get all down to it. And that can be really difficult for somebody in their 30s, 40s, and 50s who want to start or buy a business. But the fact is, every one of us have had somebody to help them. If we ever made any success of ourselves, people have helped us. And frankly, most people I know who have had some success want to pass that along somewhere. And so it's, while it may be humbling, it's necessary. And I think that's one of the first things I would challenge somebody to do is find where are they going to get their initial capital? And while the business, where are they going to get 10% of what they need? That's the key number. And how they're going to make their payments until the business starts to carry itself. Those are the two first questions. So that's what I would always start with. One of the reasons I'm asking you that is because when we're caught up in the hype of entrepreneurship, you go to the right. networking events, what does everybody tell you? Go talk to a bank, get a bank <laughs> loan, get your business kicked off. You know, but when I heard you speak to our group, I realized that you were kind of validating a lot of the experience I've heard from other entrepreneurs. The fact of it's not that easy to go out and get a bank loan that you're looking for certain types of types of businesses. And so, you know, one of the questions I asked you was like, why is there this myth between the reality, you know, like what we like to think of banking yeah. versus the reality of uh, how it actually operates? Yeah, you know, it's funny you bring that up and people ask, they ask that all the time, including family and friends. And so over the last 15 or 20 years, venture capital certainly has, has been a, a key part of funding a business. What I think gets lost, and it does when folks, uh, when they don't understand the profit model of the different businesses, a venture capitalist, somebody who privately funds a business, they are probably, in my experience, going to want an annualized return of 20 plus percent because of the risk they take. That risk leads them to invest in things that may not work. The ones that do work certainly earn them a return in excess of 20%, but when they combine that portfolio together, that's their typical return. And they want a quicker exit. They want to be done in two to five years is, again, my experience. Banks, we make 3%. That is what we make as a profit margin between the cost of the funds we lend and what we lend money to somebody for, about 3% average. Actually, it's about 3.2 right now. 
we don't have a whole lot of room to make a mistake. So if we lend money to something and it doesn't work, we're going to take that loss and we have to fund that loss out of the profits from other loans. And again, we are only making about three, three and a quarter percent. So it leads our risk profile to be a lot different than it does for somebody who provides private equity. Typically, what I talk a lot to individuals about when they want to buy a business or get in business, it has to be in stages, I believe. The first stage is you have to prove your concept, prove you can make it work. And if you have to do it by temporarily giving up some ownership, temporarily taking on a partner, once you prove your concept, one, your opportunities to acquire capital are so much greater. The banks now will talk to you. They can talk to you um, with a bit more confidence. And that would be the next phase. Then you get the bank lending to pay back that partner, buy them out potentially. And now you're staged to really grow. The first phase is always get in business and prove yourself. And that's what I advise people. And I think some folks forget that. They see these success stories they read about where somebody, uh, you know, they, they, they see them as a success today, but they may not know, get behind the curtain to find out what that person put up with to get to that point. And that's what I try to bring them back to reality and help coach them through a lot. Yeah. And we're big on this podcast about the need to validate the business model, get some paying clients, get that recurring revenue, right. and then really start to grow organically from there. Because the reality of it is there's a very small percentage of entrepreneurs that receive venture capital in the first place. There um, are. It is. It's a very right. small percentage. And so uh, we want to just be realistic when it comes to that. So what are some good examples of early stage companies that you've seen um, get lending to. It doesn't have to be a specific name. It can be kind of type of industry or whatever, where it makes sense for someone to like approach a bank about, you know, uh, getting a loan. Yeah. It, in my experience, I'll, I'll do my best to separate some of this. And frankly, the early stage companies that are easier for banks to lend to, frankly, aren't very sexy. They're not the ones we read about in the papers where they're building a new, some biotech situation or new technology or anything like that. Um, we are not very good at providing capital for concepts that are still in the proving stage. So it is more traditional business, whether it's a distribution company, a franchise. Manufacturing is a little tougher, candidly, because the capital cost, the, the capital um, need is so much greater. But it's much more traditional industries for us. Our little bank, for example, we do a lot of lending to franchises. And we do that mostly up north and you know through the middle part of the country, north to south, and we do it through our SBA loan group. And those franchises tend to it's because and they go right to the point I made. They're proven concepts, they're proven entities, and therefore we have some comfort that we're not lending to something that's trying to break new ground. The companies that try to break new ground, that goes to the thing we talked about, where that's mostly venture capital. And so um, again, more traditional industry would be where we can get early stage lending more easily, uh, get our head around it more easily. So just to break it down for our listeners, you know, um, what Mr. Gain is talking about is, again, a franchise model. It's already got a proven proof of concept. Know that you need the cash flow. Know that they've got the backers of these big institutions on them. Um, right. Correct. So there, there's right. some trust there, especially if they've seen it already. And the biggest thing that they're looking for is they got to be able to de-risk the, the venture, you know, themselves. Um, is there a certain revenue number that you tend not to lend below? 
No, in our case, we don't have that. Um, that's where I think a community bank concept is helpful. Um, I had started my career was, and it was a $40 billion bank, which is relatively small on a national basis, but that was again, 30 years ago. Um, they would have minimum revenue numbers and a lot of the larger institutions do. They just don't have, it doesn't make any sense for them uh, to lend to really very small companies. So in our case, no, we don't have minimum revenue numbers. Ours is all about the, the, the cash flow produced by that particular venture and the ability of that cash flow to repay our debt. What's a typical loan interest rate look like? So I'm going to say SBA lending first. So it's more SBA lending is more expensive than what I would call conventional bank lending. And the reason for that is, is by the nature, by nature of it, the risk profile of that is higher than a regular conventional bank loan. I'll talk about both here. So an SBA loan for us typically is a floating rate loan at 2.75% over the current prime rate. So today, that's rough at 6%. Okay. A convention. So, and, and in that particular case, when we make an SBA loan to somebody, our business model is one where, where we're helping that client, goes back to the original point of helping them get established and get their concept proven. We want them to convert in our bank once we have experience with them for, say, two to, four, two to four, two to five years. We want to convert them to a cheaper conventional type business loan and repay the SBA loan with the conventional loan once they've proven themselves and proven their concept. The SBA loan is a little bit higher priced again because the work we put into it is higher. The risk is higher. Um, and so, therefore, it reflect, the rate reflects that. A conventional loan, somebody who's already in business and they want to expand their company, frankly, it's probably 2% below that. It's probably in the 4% range at the, in the current environment. So it's a pretty substantial difference in interest rate. Now, I've also seen, you know, it's interesting. It's what's, what's one or two loans that everybody has? Everybody's familiar with home mortgages because they're advertised everywhere. So they hear those rates. You talk to somebody, then you say 6% for an SBA loan and they get startled. There's just such a different business model in those home, you know, a home mortgage, certainly the, probably the most secure loan a bank can ever make. People could be in trouble and do everything they can to save their home. That will be the last bill. They will never, that they, they will not pay other things before they don't pay their home. Business, the risk profile is a lot higher. The rate's a lot higher. Um, and again, it reflects that risk. And it's, again, people who aren't used to that, I think most of your audience probably experiences and is familiar with the differences, so I don't have to get that deep with it. But it's uh, people who are just trying to do their, their first education of the differences, they kind of start there. Um, so again, 6% SBA loan in our world, uh, it floats every quarter. The other side of an SBA loan, though, is the amortization is going to be a lot longer than what we would do on a conventional loan, for example. An SBA loan that's help is purchasing equipment, helping the person purchase equipment, will amortize that over 10 years. A conventional loan, it's probably five. So while the rate may be higher on the SBA loan, the payment will be lower than the conventional loan, which again, early stages in the company, that cash flow is king. Get cash flow, get it proven, make it consistent, and then you've got a lot more ability to negotiate into a conventional loan at a lower rate. 
So I, I, don't know, I feel like I rambled a bit there. So sorry no, about that. No, it was great. I appreciate you breaking that down. And just so y'all are aware, you know, we keep having these conversations about non-dilutive capital. Trust me when we tell you that, you know, that 4%, that 6%, right, is still a lot cheaper than giving up a piece of your company. And you might not yes. believe it now, but guarantee when you start to look at selling your company and all the other stuff, you know, um, that's why people tend to try to go after bank loans instead of giving up yep. equity. Um, but that's a conversation that you're going to have to have with yourself and your team as you continue to build out your, your ventures. Now, Mr. Gein, let me ask you this. What kind of mistakes have you seen Lindy's make with regards to working with banks? Sure. Um, There's a couple that stick in my mind when you ask that question, Mike. So one of the biggest things, I think one of the first things that comes to mind when you ask that question let me make sure I phrase this correctly for your group. They, I don't think I have a lot of people not have, I guess empathy might be the right word for the position the bank has to put itself in when it loans money and they get frustrated and in some cases insulted by our need for all of the information we need and the verification of that information. So again, like, let me give you some examples. Certainly every time we get a loan request, we're asking for the typical things, tax returns and, and personal financial statements. We also verify that information independently of what somebody tells us. That can be an insulting, <laughs> insulting uh, or offensive task for people to know that we're gonna do that. We do have people who wanna borrow money and don't tell us maybe everything in their financial situation. And, it, and that really is a problem for us from the standpoint that it, we, we use all of that information to evaluate whether we can make that, make that loan or not. There are people many times who come and they, they have a portion of their business that they get paid in cash. I don't begrudge anybody at that's somebody else's business. If you, if you want to do your business and get paid in cash and then, and not, not report that, I, I, that's a different conversation, but we only can lend money on information that is that is reported, reported legally in your taxes or reported to us in your financial statements. And if you choose not to report things, it's gonna make it's going to make that loan decision more difficult to end up in your favor. Um, that people get really frustrated with that, um, and it happens more often, you know, than most would think. Um, one of the other frustrations folks have, um, they look and they, they, they may, when they come to the bank, they look and say, look, I've always paid my car payment. I've always paid my house payment. I've had a dream. I've been doing this living, earning a living this way for years and years. And I've had my dream and I'm honest and I've handled my affairs right. So I, I you know, and they don't understand why some of that historical handling while they were employed doesn't translate as strongly as when they want to start their own business. What do you mean you can't lend me the money? I've always been a good credit risk. And, and most of your audience understands the difference between working for some, I know they understand it, working for somebody and taking the risk of starting your own. Um, that can be extraordinarily frustrating. We were talking to somebody, uh, one of my SBA lenders, there was a fellow in Texas who is buying three uh, franchises from a person who started them 15 years ago. And him and my lender and me were on the phone talking it through. 
he had an opportunity somewhere in the middle of that purchase to buy a couple of the buildings where the franchises were located. And I, I, I was adamant that that just was not the right thing for him to do at the moment. And you know, he questioned that. And, you know, and he said he had an option of leasing those from the, the person he's buying the business from. That was a bit of a, that was a really frustrating hour for that person. Now, ultimately, we're helping this person acquire those three franchise locations, and he's not buying the buildings. The frustration there, again, going back to the original concept, it's all about making sure you have what it takes to run those businesses. And we all know, no matter how well we make a plan, whatever plan we make is not going to be exactly the way things work out. And therefore, I'd rather not see a business owner take up their precious capital to buy the real estate until they've proven themselves, gotten through the holy cow moments to come, and then buy the real estate later. So again, people have a plan and they want to jump through the steps before they really should. And in that particular instance, I think can be fatal. If, if he that person buying those franchises, if he gets in there running them and there's surprises that were never disclosed to them and he's used up some of his own excess personal capital to buy that real estate, that's less capital that he has to help manage through an issue. And while my advice to him was frustrating, I was passionate about it in that there's plenty of time to buy or expand, get in business. And that is the biggest, that's probably the biggest frustration as I'm talking. Um, that I hear from people. Um, they want to grow too fast. They don't like when we try and tap the brakes on them. Um, and, and they just miss some of the steps to get from in business to the size they want to be later. They want to go as quickly as possible. And I get it, but oh my goodness. Um, that it too fast is, is just uh, it probably frustrating. Yeah. Just hearing you talk, right. You know, one of the things they say is a business you should have, was it three to six months of cash on hand to cover rainy day? Easy. 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 Right. Now, obviously COVID-19 just showed us how uh, volatile, (laughs) you know, our reality really is when stuff comes up. And so then you think about, okay, I already got payroll. Now I've got to pay off my loans. I got all this other stuff. Um, And so it, it presents a unique challenge. Talk to us about how in those instances of crisis, such as bridge loans, you know, we've got sure. the accounts, whatever, you know, how, how, how does that work? Well, you know, that we we'll use COVID as just the backdrop. That's since everybody's familiar now. So one of the things that happened during COVID that really wasn't covered out of the government programs were people that owned, uh, say, apartment buildings. So I don't know how you know, I, I will speak to only the communities in St. Louis where there were moratoriums on evictions and moratoriums where people couldn't, you know, couldn't pay their rent. You couldn't evict them. Yet these people that own these buildings had loans to people like me. And I would tell you that, you know, we do our best to work with them. When I say that, we may reduce their payments to just making interest on their loans rather than amortizing the loan. In some cases, we had a couple of cases where we did suspend payments to those individuals uh, for a period of time, but there's only so much of that as a bank we can do as that's our business. That's our cash flow to run our business and keep our business alive. So it's frustrating because in some of those cases, 
We knew those borrowers well enough to know that they may, a year ago, may have bought a vacation home, may have bought some other big purchase personally. And, and on the surface, nothing was wrong with that, but you did so and looked and used up all of your excess liquidity, not ever thinking that you may have that next rainy day. Now, nobody could predict COVID, but if it isn't COVID, there's always something that crops up in business that you don't anticipate. And that liquidity, excess liquidity is critical. You know, it's interesting. I think of a story. There were two, two uh, clients of mine many years ago. They were home builders here in St. Louis. And it was over a golf game. So we were on the golf course and one of their partners was more conservative than the other. And they were building first time homes for people. And I, I tend to think simplistically, I think in buckets for money. So they asked, they were, I mean, they, I can't tell you how many homes they were selling. They were building them faster than they could. They were selling them fast, fast as they could build them. And I, I advised them. I said, in every closing, when you sell a home, I would advise you to have a line item from the money you get from that buyer and a certain amount of money, say, say $3,000, $5,000 a home, automatically goes from the closing title company, wired into your account. And that's just your rainy day fund that you're accumulating. And one of them, you know, literally were, he was just arguing a little bit, friendly arguing. And the other one said he wanted to do it. And long and short is they couldn't come to an agreement and they didn't do it. And of course, housing, being housing, this was pre-2008, it cratered. They ultimately ended up losing everything because they didn't accumulate liquidity when the world was good. And the other thing I talk to people about is let's assume you do that. You accumulate some liquidity and you never have that kind of mistake where you need to use it. Well, the next time the world slows down, sellers get a little more desperate and the buyers with liquidity now take advantage of those opportunities and can expand their businesses cheaper than any other time because those sellers who are in trouble need to sell assets quicker at lower prices than they might have when the economy was good. I've seen more people who practice that able to expand their businesses and create success for themselves by buying on those down moments and buy because they have a little liquidity. So, that's another thing I advise people of. And it's frustrating, like that example I gave you with the home builders, frustrating. And it makes me sad. It made me sad for them. I, mean, I knew these folks 15 years. I wanted them to succeed. I, they're good people. And they just got ahead of themselves. And, uh, and that happens very frequently. So I don't know if that answers what you asked. No, it does. Um, you know, in the entrepreneurial community, right? Nobody likes to pay taxes. So nobody wants to keep profit. <laughs> you know, so what do people try to do? They try to spend all their money at the end of the year, you yep. know, so that they don't show up and have a, they don't want to pay more taxes. But one of the things I, I appreciate having a business coach about, he told me, he said, Mike, you do not want to be in a position where you cannot make payroll. Right. He's like, look yeah. around this room. All these guys have been in that position before. And I'm telling you, you know, you will always need to make sure you have cash for a rainy day. You know, yep. you know, it's, and it is, and I know that sounds boring to people. It's like I said, it's not terribly sexy. But the people who really succeed, if you, everybody would sit back and think about that and try and get to know somebody who's achieved a tremendous amount of success, and if you can get them to be, to your word, vulnerable and honest with you about what they went through to get to that point, you learn so much. And you, you got to get away from where they are today and try and get back into where they came from 
And I think that usually helps put things in perspective for most, if you can get somebody to be that honest with you. As we look towards the future, coming on the other side of this pandemic, obviously everybody's kind of tired of talking about COVID already, but we, you know, the economy's moving, you know, people are relaunching their ventures, they're doing rebrands, they're doing pivots, they're doing all this kind of stuff. You know, right. what do you see as like the future of, uh, of, of Linden in this kind of uh, post-COVID uh, recovery yeah. phase? What opportunities are there going to be out there for the veteran, entrepreneur, and military spouse community? Yeah. I think... Uh, I'm, I personally am very confident in the next 18 months. I think people's businesses are going to come out of this. And you hear this on CNBC and any articles you read. I think the next 18 months are going to be um, about as hot as I've ever seen from growth and opportunities. Now, on the flip side, I've never seen asset values personally as high as they are right now. So somebody who wants to buy a building for their business or expand their business through um, the equipment or, or whatever, you're buying, you, know, you buy into the hot market, which means you're, you may overpay relative to what it was in recent past. So I know I feel like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. I think the opportunities are going to be tremendous. They are for the next 18 months. I candidly worry 18 to 24 months from now, there's going to be a reckoning. And that's why anybody who asks me, I advise them to build the liquidity I mentioned, because when that reckoning comes, I don't think it'll be an 08 reckoning. I think it's just going to be the amount of money that's been pumped into our system in the last 12 months is what's driving where we are today. That money obviously can't go on forever. It's government money. It's, it's not sustainable. When that stops, when all that money is no longer being pumped into the system, there's going to be, there seems to me there almost has to be a reversal in asset values and there'll be an opportunity there for people who position themselves correctly to take advantage of that moment. I don't think it's, I don't see anything that says it's going to be 2008 all over again. That's not where I'm going, but I think there's going to be that. So short term, I think you've got immense opportunity to grow business right now. I would be cautious, but cautiously deliberate in trying to, expand an idea that you have, an opportunity that you have right now. I think I've seen more sellers of businesses be willing to take back part of the sale price in, in, in notes back from sellers than I've seen in a long time over the last 18 months. Um, I think, I think um, some of the uncertainty of those times the last 18 months has caused that. But it's that creates also an opportunity for individuals wanting to purchase an existing business because that's less capital than they personally have to come up with as well. So, again, I think for me, I think there's expansion opportunities right now that are going to go through the rest of this year and all of 22. Um, and I think anybody in business right now, it is time to make hay and make hay good and keep then. At the same time, keep some of that cash that you're earning for the next, you know, fall off so that you can continue to make hay because you're the one with liquidity and somebody else may not. And you take advantage of that situation. So that's me. We've got veteran and military spouse entrepreneurs tuning, all, tuning in from all over the country, all over the world. What closing remarks would you like to, to leave them with uh, today as the leader of a community bank that understands the entrepreneurial challenges that they're facing? And that is uh, hopeful for the future. 
Yeah. Well, uh, so first of all, thanks for all you guys did. All you men and women, thank you. I have a good friend of mine who actually introduced me to Mike's cohort, who's a graduate of, of West Point, and, uh, and Jeff and I have been very close for the last 15 years. So thank you. Second, I would encourage you strongly to think candidly about your abilities to bring some of your own capital or private capital to the table to get started. Don't get frustrated with that thought. It's, it's again, a step. The step is to get you in the game. Then prove yourself. The experience you've all had um, in leadership that you've learned in your military lives is invaluable. I would tell you that it, it, we, speaking only from our small company's perspective, we bend over backwards to try and coach people through and make capital structures that they can use to get in the business. So I know that's repetitive to things we've said, but I can't emphasize it enough. It is steps, it is stages. It's like any career you're building, you just happen to be building your own business. And the first thing out of the box probably isn't the where you wanna be, but it is the stepping stone to getting you started. And it starts with making sure you honestly assess your ability to get a little capital. And then I'd probably then go and look for some business that I can buy rather than start because I think there's an advantage to that and then grow from that platform. Speaking from our bank's perspective, starting from scratch, I can't tell you how we underestimated the challenges we were going to have um, when we first started. Everything we planned went wrong. So I, I, I had to do over again. I would have bought an existing small bank and done it that way. So from that experience, I would encourage people to look more that route first if they can do it. Well, Mr. Gein, I appreciate you for taking your time to spend some time with us uh, here at the bunker. Uh, where can people follow you? Uh, where can they learn more about the work you're doing uh, in Missouri? So our uh, bank's website is myfortuneteam.com, M-Y-F-O-R-T-U-N-E team.com. Our company is called Fortune Bank. It is just south of St. Louis. My email address is the letter J, Gein, G-E-E-N, at myfortuneteam.com. And I'm happy, if anybody reaches out to me, I'm happy to uh, communicate with you and provide you any guidance that I can, even if you don't ultimately become a client of Fortune. Um, your audience particularly deserves all the consideration I could give them. Um, so that's how they get a hold of me. Well, we appreciate having you. And again, one thing I want to emphasize, community banks, right? He's talking from a community bank perspective. And so this is as raw and honest as you're going to get at the grassroots, you know, ground level. And uh, it's yes, an honor sir. to have you in our ecosystem. For our listeners, do us a favor and subscribe to the transitional iTunes, Spotify, or whatever listening service you're using today. We'd greatly appreciate it if you left us a review and shared this podcast with someone in your network who you feel can benefit from the information. If you want to get plugged into the Bunker Lab ecosystem, visit www.bunkerlabs.org, select the city nearest to you, sign up for the local newsletter, and attend one of our networking events. It's that simple. From there, get connected at Bunker Online, where you can learn about our many different programs to support your entrepreneurial journey. We have programs that'll take you from idea to invoice, incubate you, and position you to go alongside other founders and CEOs. Register today by clicking connect at bunkerlabs.org. 
Thanks again, Mr. Gein. And for everyone that's tuning in, and until next time, peace, love, and have a great rest of your week.